Welcome back to Jewish History Matters. I'm Jason Lustig, and I'm joined today by Jeffrey Weidlinger and Amelia Glazer to talk about the ongoing war in Ukraine and its historical and cultural context. Today, as we're recording, it's Tuesday, March 8th, and we're working to get this episode published as quickly as possible because so much can change so quickly. I'm really excited to share this conversation as we think deeply about the background to the war, how we can understand Jewish history in Ukraine, and particularly Putin's deranged claim to try to quote-unquote denazify Ukraine. There's so much going on here in terms of the war, in terms of the rhetoric, in terms of the question of how we can understand the complex 21st century world that we're living in. And this is not really a fun topic for very obvious reasons. It's a tragic and a needless war. And I hope that this conversation can help to shed some light onto some of the issues that we're grappling with as we try to understand what's going on. So I should introduce our two guests. First, we're joined by Amelia Glazer, who is Associate Professor of Literature at UC San Diego, where she also holds an endowed chair in Judaic Studies. She's the author of Jews and Ukrainians in Russia's Literary Borderlands, which was published in 2012, and more recently, Songs in Dark Times, Yiddish Poetry of Struggle from Scottsboro to Palestine, which was published in 2020. Currently, she's the Rita E. Hauser Fellow at the Harvard Radcliffe Institute, where she's working on a book about contemporary Ukrainian poetry and community, and she's also curating a series of translations of recent poetry from Ukraine for LitHub. Hi, Amelia. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. And our second guest today is Jeffrey Weidlinger, who is the Joseph Brodsky Collegiate Professor of History and Judaic Studies at the University of Michigan. He's the author of numerous books, including most recently, In the Midst of Civilized Europe, The Pogroms of 1918 to 1921, and The Onset of the Holocaust, which was published in 2021. Hi, Jeff. Thanks so much for joining us. Nice to be here. Thanks so much for listening to our conversation today. One way for us to get started might be for each of you guys to briefly summarize your thinking on the war, right, as it's developing right now, and how the events that are taking place in Ukraine connect with the issues that you've been dealing with in your broader work. I came to the Radcliffe Institute this year to write a book about contemporary Ukrainian poetry and the changes that identity has undergone in Ukraine over the last decade, especially since the Maidan Revolution of Dignity or Revolutia Hidnesti, which took place in 2013-2014. My whole purpose for being here writing this book and away from my teaching for a year was to talk about this remarkable place that under the eyes of the rest of the world over the last eight years, in the midst of a war against Russian-backed separatists, has undergone a, a kind of process of becoming as its own as its own people, as its own modern identity. And one of the things that I've seen happening in Ukraine for the last eight years, but really even longer, has been a shift in thinking about what it means to be Ukrainian 
from thinking about this as an ethno-national category, right? Ukrainians are somehow united by blood and faith and just the Ukrainian language to thinking about it in terms of a civic identity. And I'm seeing this playing out in really interesting ways in the poetry that's been written since this revolution of dignity eight years ago. And so I came to Radcliffe with the idea of writing this book. And of course, shortly after getting here, troops began to mass on the borders of Ukraine. And and now there is an outright invasion of Ukraine by its neighboring Russia. And this gets into the issues that I was dealing with in my book in a lot of important ways, because the central accusation that's been made against Ukraine is that it's somehow a a kind of right-wing nationalist government which is in direct opposition to everything that I've observed about the country, that some of the claims have been that Ukrainians have been imposing a sort of Nazi rule over the other peoples that are living there, including Russian speakers, which also, of course, goes against everything that I've found. But I think some of my past work sheds light on this because I've written about the coexistence of Jews and Ukrainians in this territory that is now Ukraine and how these two groups have defined their own identities, sometimes in opposition to one another, often also in in collaboration, sometimes against a common enemy, sometimes for other reasons. So there's certainly a lot to say if we want to look specifically about Ukrainian-Jewish relations, but also I think the the multi-ethnic history of Ukraine helps us to understand contemporary Ukrainians' views of what it means to be Ukrainian. First of all, this war is absolutely tragic and absolutely unnecessary. To me, it tells us that the 21st century, in many ways, still not gotten over the 20th century. The 20th century, particularly in Ukraine, is a story of immense tragedy. There's also hope. There's also good things in there. But there's a tremendous amount of tragedy in the story of Ukraine in the 20th century. When I wrote The Shadow of the Shtetl, which was based on oral history interviews in the Yiddish language that I had done with the team in Ukraine, I became aware of the extent of that tragedy. We were interviewing people, many of whom were born around 1915 or so, 1916, when the oldest were born. And these were people whose earliest memories were the tumultuous years of the revolution and what's generally called the Russian Civil War, but was actually not a civil war, but was a war of many different factions fighting each other that was fought largely in Ukraine. And many of them were victims of that and had their parents killed during that war. We interviewed one person whose family was killed in a massacre in 1919 while he was two years old. And his mother was holding him in her arms when she was killed. And he still has a bullet wound across his arm from where the bullet that killed his mother ricocheted off of his arm. He was then rescued by a Polish priest from that grave. This is 1919. We then have this civil war in which the 100,000 Jews who were killed in ethnic violence between 1918 and 1921 during this period, and that's on top of millions of others who were killed in the war itself, were killed fighting. And that's then followed by a period of intensive requisitions in the 1920s. In the late 1920s, tens of thousands of people are arrested in Ukraine, as well as elsewhere in the Soviet Union. And that's immediately followed by a massive unnecessary famine that many people consider to be a forced famine on the Ukrainian people, perpetrated by the Stalinist authorities in Moscow, which about three and a half to four million people were killed between 1932 and 1933, followed by Stalin's Great Terror in 1937-1938, which took a big effect in Ukraine. And right as that's ending, and right as the people that we interviewed 
were often starting their lives, finishing their schools, getting married, is when the Second World War began. And about a quarter of the victims of the Holocaust were killed in Ukraine. About one and a half million Jews were killed in Ukraine between 1941 and 1943. Most of them were killed very close to their homes in, and shot into mass graves like Baba Yar, which is the most famous of them. And then those who survived fled and came home afterwards and found that they were no longer welcome, that their homes had been taken over. Other people had moved into their homes while they were gone. Some of them couldn't get permits to settle back in the cities that they were originally from. And their entire communities were destroyed. These people who fled towns that were often 80, 90 percent Jewish went away and then they came back and literally nobody was left alive. They expected to find destruction, but couldn't have imagined the destruction they actually found. And then they grew up and reached their adulthood in this period of anti-Semitism, of official Soviet anti-Semitism, where they were discriminated against in the Soviet Union because they were Jews. And non-Jewish Ukrainians also experienced similar century. The tragedy is that things were getting a lot better in Ukraine. In the 20 years or so that I've been regularly going to Ukraine, things had improved immensely. And in 2019, they had a free and fair election that produced Volodymyr Zelensky as the president, getting 73% of the vote. And Petro Poroshenko, who he defeated, conceded peacefully and turned over power to him. And Poroshenko right now is out in the streets leading a small brigade fighting to defend Zelensky's Ukraine. This is a vibrant democracy. And in fact, the kind of democracy that I wish we had right now in the United States. And it's a tragedy that it took them so long to get to this point. It took them 100 years between 1919, the fir- or 1918, the first declaration of a Ukrainian state in 19 and 2019. And it's a tragedy that that now is being put to the test that it's being put to. As you know, you both laid out here, Amelia and Jeff, really well. You know, I think that what we're looking at here in the war, you know, is a really a needless war, you know, as you said, you know, and also one that is deeply rooted in history. Putin's uh, somewhat ridiculous claims, you know, you, you might put it right about Ukraine, are rooted in a, a certain kind of historical narrative that he has tried to spin in terms of the Russian propaganda. You know, in addition, the developments in Ukraine over, over the past number of years are themselves a product of the 20th century and need to be understood within that broader context, right? One way for us to start to think about this historical context of Ukraine, you know, leading up to the current events and as we try to make sense of them is to look at some of these issues that you guys just mentioned, right? You know, Jeff, you talked very you know, briefly just before about some of the ways in which many of the, the most significant and some of the most tragic events of 20th century Jewish history took place in the region that is contemporary Ukraine. You know, and we can also look at contemporary Ukraine as kind of a part of a, you know, contemporary Jewish history as well. So, you know, when we're looking at 20th and 21st century Jewish history, why is Ukraine so important for us to think about um, as a region, you know, as a country, when we're thinking about Jewish history uh, you know, as a whole? I do want to say that in addition to being a place of tragedy, it is also a place that Jewish life flourished for a long time. It's the place where Hasidism originated. In many ways, modern Jewish politics itself originated in Ukraine. Hebrew literature, Chaim Nachman Bialik came from Ukraine, Yiddish literature, Shalom Aleichem came from Ukraine, and most of his stories are set in Ukraine. Russian literature, Isaac Babel, stories are set in Ukraine. Golda Meir is from Ukraine, the list goes on and on. There's also long periods in between of you know, Jewish life flourishing. 
Soviet Jewish culture in Ukraine flourished at the very beginning of the Soviet period. So you asked about Putin's war and and how to kind of explain what's going on, some of the history behind this. And I think it's really important to separate the fundamental kind of basic reasons that Putin is threatened by Ukraine are different from the rhetoric around Ukraine that he's been delivering. So the reasons, as most of us are aware at this point, is that the expansion of NATO would mean that Russia might be surrounded by NATO countries and views this as, as a direct threat. But the reasons that Putin has been giving have been some variant on Ukraine doesn't really exist anyway and has always really been part of Russia and Russia loves Ukraine. <laughs> and this kind of brotherly love has been delivered in somewhat inconsistent, strange speeches and articles over the past several years, but especially heating up over the past several months. This past July of 2021, Putin published on the Kremlin website this very strange manifesto about the history of Ukraine, talking about all of the moments of friendship and all of the moments when Ukraine was supposed to have sworn allegiance to Russia, dating back to the 17th century and even before, and or the 16th century and before, and then continuing with, and by the way, Zelensky is doing terrible things in Ukraine now. It's a very internally inconsistent narrative, and he repeated versions of this narrative in his speeches that he gave during the invasion. But one of the moments that he highlights, and this is a significant moment to Ukrainian Jewish history as well, is the um, what's known as the Khmelnytsky uprisings or the 1648 Cossack uprisings. This was one of the really significant points in Ukrainian history when a Ukrainian people, the Cossacks, wanted to claim a unified Cossack state. They wanted to claim more rights from the Polish magnates who then controlled much of what is now the Ukrainian territory. And Bogdan Khmelnytsky led an uprising against the Polish magnates. Thousands of Jews died as collateral damage. Many Jews were working directly for these Polish nobles, whether as go-betweens or um, simply being sort of seen as culturally part of these Polish magnate cities. And somewhere upwards of 10,000, possibly many more Jews died in the Khmelnytsky uprisings. The story of these, these terrible massacres that accompanied the uprising has made its way into Jewish liturgy. So if you're a Jew living outside Ukraine, you've heard the name Khmelnytsky. You've learned to associate it with sort of the, the beginning of all of the horrible things in Eastern Europe that have happened to Jews. And Ukraine is somehow vaguely associated with terror against Jews. And this is, isn't wrong. I mean, it, it was very tragic for Jews, but this was also 500 years ago. And Putin bringing up Khmelnytsky actually didn't even bring up the massacres, but brought up the allegiance that Khmelnytsky supposedly swore to the Tsar later as a way of pulling away from the Polish magnates. So I think this piece of Jewish history has become canonical, has become something that people associate with Jewish-Ukrainian relations and is sometimes the basis for the irony with which people receive the information that Zelensky happens to be Jewish. Actually, there's a thriving Jewish culture that still exists in Ukraine. And for Jews who have thought of Ukraine as a kind of Egypt from the Exodus story, have to make sense of that. And I'll add that as in the Khmelnytsky rebellion, Jews were targeted mainly because they were agents of another group. 
the attacks on the Jewish community were because Ukrainian peasants, ordinary folk, generally regarded them as agents of the Poles and were out to get these Polish magnates who held vast latifundia, vast estates in Ukraine that they weren't themselves managing, but the Jews were on hand to manage. And this often seems to be the case in anti-Jewish violence in the region, is Jews are scapegoated for a variety of political issues that are happening. And one of the reasons they are is because Jews are actually often on all sides of the conflict. They're not united in a territory in Ukraine, so they can't claim their own sovereignty in Ukraine, but they tend to be scattered around in urban enclaves throughout Ukraine. They can take different sides. In the uh, 1918 to 1921 pogroms, they were regarded as the enemies by all sides of the conflict because they really were on all sides of the conflict. So there were some Jews. Meaning there were different Jews. There were different Jews on all sides. Yes, right. There were different Jews on all sides of the conflict. Thank you. So Ukrainian nationalists blamed them for siding with the Poles and Polish nationalists blamed them for siding with the Ukrainians. The Bolsheviks in the early days targeted them because they were the store owners, the shop owners, the merchants. They regarded them as the bourgeois capitalists. But on the other hand, the elite, the people with wealth, targeted the Jews because they regarded them as Bolsheviks. And during World War I, the Russians targeted them because they thought they were spying for the Germans, and the Germans targeted them because they thought they were spying for the Russians. So, in fact, there were Jews on all sides of the conflict precisely because they weren't united in a specific territory with specific goals as a group. And that's, in many ways, I think, you know, how we can also interpret the Chmelitsky rebellion. It's one of the fears I have right now is that there are actually Jews on all sides of the conflict. At the moment, Jews are not being blamed, and this is not about the Jews, and hopefully this will remain so. But I do get concerned the more that we talk about Zelensky as a Jew and the more that Zelensky himself has emphasized his Jewishness, which is something he has not done until this war began. But now he's talked about it quite extensively. And I noticed that even newspaper articles have changed the tone in which they talk about Zelensky. They used to say that he had Jewish roots or was of Jewish ancestry. And then they started saying, just about a week ago, I noticed a change in a lot of news reports that are outright saying he's Jewish. And now I just saw in Tablet Magazine, Natan Sharansky is quoted as saying that he's a proud Jew. So it even goes one step further. And in fact, Zelensky has only said a few things about his Jewishness. One in one interview he gave in Israel, where he was really pressed on it, he said he grew up in a typical Soviet Jewish family, which to those who know what a typical Soviet Jewish family means, that means without much Jewish identity, I think is his way of saying it. And he's never really emphasized it all that much before, but now he is. And on the same, at the same level, Putin is also associated with some prominent Jews among the oligarchs. And that is certainly noticed by many people, including uh, several of the leading oligarchs are Jews who actually stem from Ukraine, who were born in Ukraine. And this can also become a potent weapon by those who want to distract attention from the real conflict and to look for scapegoats as they have done in the past. Naftali Bennett, of course, inserting himself now and trying to negotiate for both sides and shuttling between Moscow and his conversations with Zelensky can contribute further to this sense that the Jews are in the center of it when they really aren't and really shouldn't be. Well, if Bennett can insert himself and broker a peace, <laughs> that wouldn't be the worst thing for the world. I think the Kremlin 
attempted in various ways in 2013, 2014, during this Maidan revolution of dignity, um, attempted to make this a Jewish issue. Putin called the Maidan movement. This is the moment when you had thousands and thousands of people gathering on all the central squares of Ukraine. He called it a pogrom. Others have, have talked about the neo-Nazis that you know, were gathered out there when actually it was just a broad cross-section of people from Ukraine from all different origins. One of the first instigators of the pogrom was a journalist of Afghani descent, Mohammed Naim, who is now in the government, Zelensky's government. And the idea that the Maidan might represent some kind of Nazi uprising for Putin was to associate any kind of unrest towards the West and in its movement towards Europe with this World War II narrative, which, which holds that you know the, the Soviet Union, not the Soviet Union and its allies, but the Soviet Union fought Nazi Germany. And there was all kinds of rhetoric around Barack Obama and Angela Merkel being the modern day Hitler. And surprisingly, I encountered people in the United States that bought this. When I talked about the Maidan in 2014, I did have concerned people, especially American Jews, raising their hands and saying, well, what about the anti-Semitism? Isn't this a resurgence of anti-Semitism? I've heard it might be. Nobody's really buying that now that I've encountered in quite the same way. So Putin bet on being able to use the same narrative. There are plenty of, Jeff's right, there are plenty of Russian Jews who are on the side of the Kremlin in Russia, who are especially immediately surrounding Putin allies and so forth. And there are also lots of Jews in Ukraine. But I, I think one of the things that has shifted has been this very noticeable shift towards a kind of civic identity. Ukrainians have stopped self-identifying in this very strong ethno-national way, which was even strong in like 2004 when Yushchenko was elected after the Orange Revolution. There was still this idea that the, there was a sort of national movement in Ukraine that was more towards the West and all Ukrainians should, should speak Ukrainian and let's valorize some of the Ukrainian national heroes, including Stepan Bandera, who was a radical right-wing nationalist in Ukraine who was briefly allied with the Nazis. And, and former President Yushchenko actually bestowed on, on Bandera this category of hero of Ukraine. This was accepted by some, welcomed by some, rejected by many. It may well have contributed to Yushchenko's defeat by Yanukovych in 2010. But increasingly, Ukrainians, especially younger Ukrainians, have identified as citizens of Ukraine and have moved away from uh, this immediate post-Soviet narrative of ethno-nationalism. And I think that's one of the reasons that this accusation of Nazism is falling flat. Of course, the fact that Zelensky, who is a person of Jewish descent, was elected president in 2019 helps to make this argument. What kind of nationalist state is this? He's a Russian-speaking uh, Jew, right? Secular Soviet Jew, born a secular Soviet Jew, born and raised in, in Krivurih, which is an industrial city in eastern Ukraine. How can this possibly be a nationalist Ukrainian language only country? So Zelensky meant more in that he was elected than for what he himself actually was as a means of, of countering some of these Russian accusations. 
And I want to agree with what Amelia said and add that actually, I mean, this shift to what she called the civic identity is, has really been remarkable, at least in what I've seen over the last few years. Even in 2014, in the demonstrations in 2014, there were neo-Nazis more prominently represented on the stage in, the, in Maidan than I think there would be now. And they've really largely been silenced in the last five, six, seven years. They were marginal then. I do want to you know, make it clear they were marginal then. It was like one, one and a half percent at its top as a political party. Yeah, this right wing party. Yeah, certainly as a political unit, but they were tolerated on the stage. They could never amass many political, many votes, many positions, but they were at least allowed on the stage in a way that I don't think they are now. There really has been this shift towards a civic politics in, in Ukraine that's not based on national identity. And it's interesting because Ukraine actually has a lot of people of different backgrounds there, including people of Hungarian background, Romanian background, Jewish background, German background, Polish background. So it is in many ways a multinational society and has always been. And a number of refugees. Right. A number of refugees from uh, places like Afghanistan and Syria. As you point out, are represented in government as well and actually prominently represented in government. So it's, it's quite a tolerant society right now. And I think that's why another reason why the Nazism accusation falls so flat in Ukraine and the Western world. But I'm not sure how flat it falls in Russia, where the press still, newspapers repeatedly refer to what's going on in Ukraine as a denazification and talk about Ukrainians as Nazis. And it's a term that does have resonance because there is a history of Nazism in Ukraine. There is a history of the Ukrainian nationalist movement during World War II siding with the Germans for a while. And that's why this terminology has resonance. And Putin knows it. And he knows that there are foreign audiences as well who associate and make this association as well as domestic audiences. But it's a, an outdated association that's simply has no basis in the current reality. What does have basis in the current reality, and what I think Putin is actually more afraid of than Nazism, is democracy. And he's right, where Putin is right, is that Ukrainians and Russians do have a long history together. They do share a lot in terms of culture, in terms of language. There's, there definitely is a shared history there. And so what works in Ukraine could very well work in Russia. And if democracy is now working so well in Ukraine, or at least relatively well, there's still a good deal of corruption, but it's working pretty well in Ukraine. And if Russians see that, hey, those Ukrainians have all of this democracy and all of this freedom, why can't we get it too? That's what poses a serious threat uh, to Putin. So he is much more concerned about the spread of democracy from Ukraine than he is the spread of Nazism from Ukraine. I think that much is clear. Right. I mean, I'll, I'll just add that I think that in terms of the rhetoric, you know, if Putin came out and said, you know, quote, you know, we're going to de-democratize Ukraine, right? You know, everybody would very clearly understand that that is bad. You know, this rhetoric of denazification, you know, however, you know, as you said, it's 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 outmoded. It doesn't apply in any sort of way. It has the potential to gain uh, support, right? Which is, I think, what he's trying to do by using that rhetoric. Absolutely. And, and we need to remember that his listeners are not only in Europe and in Russia, his listeners are all over the world. And he can potentially gain support outside of Europe among those who might equate what is taking place in Ukraine right now with more ethnic-based wars. He has presented the war in Donbass 
as a group of oppressed separatists who really should be given their own rights and who have been tormented by Ukraine. In actuality, the separatists in Donbass have been backed by Russia. They are Russian nationalists who were living in Ukraine. And the, the war there has really been a, essentially a war between Russia and Ukraine without exactly calling it that. But that's not always visible because it's been very much covered up by Russia. And rather than claiming its part in that war, which I actually suspected might happen eventually, Russia has gone in in defense of these Donbass and Luhansk separatists. And that's been part of its justifications. This idea that Russian speakers are an oppressed minority in Ukraine has been part of his narrative, despite the fact that the country has welcomed Russian speakers, all of the bills to try and make Ukrainian more prominent have been defeated. There have been various bills that have been put forward to no longer have Russia, Russian as an official language, and those have been turned down. One of the things that I think led to Putin's weird manifesto that he published in July was a, a bill that Zelensky put forward around indigenous peoples, the protection of indigenous peoples in Ukraine. And Zelensky presented this in sometime in the spring of last year, and uh, it protects three groups. These are three groups that have historically lived in the territory of Crimea. So for obvious reasons, Putin was very upset about the, the Ukrainian protection of these groups. One was the Crimean Tatars, many of whom have left Crimea since the Russian invasion for other parts of Ukraine. And the other two are actually Judaic groups, the Krimchaks and the Karaites. So those are the three groups who are allowed to have certain privileges in preserving their ethnic heritage. Russians were not included in that because they have their own state. Ashkenazi Jews were not included in that. Arguably, you know, the state of Israel is kind of a is a state that could belong to Jews if they wanted it to. Ukrainians are not included in that. None of these other minorities that Jeff has mentioned were included in this bill. This is specifically indigenous, and it was aligned with the UN resolutions around indigenous groups that have already been passed in other parts of Europe. I'm sorry, it may have been the EU definition of indigenous groups. And Putin was incensed by this. He wanted Russian speakers to be reflected as an indigenous group. And this was, I think, one of the reasons for this, this long diatribe that he published in July. And he keeps bringing up this idea that, that Russians are an oppressed minority and that Ukrainians are effectively acting as Nazis against Russians. As others have pointed out, the whole idea that Russian minor that Russian speakers are an oppressed minority in Ukraine is ridiculous because Russian speakers have more freedom in Ukraine than they have in Russia. In Ukraine, Russian speakers are allowed to actually vote for their government and have the government rise or fall based on their votes. They're allowed to run for government. And in fact, Zelensky himself is a native Russian speaker. They can run for government and even become president. Whereas when Russian speakers try to run for government in Russia, they end up in prison like Alexei Navalny. So I think that needs to be kept in mind as well, that Russian speakers have more freedom in Ukraine than they have in Russia. There's a lot to think about here in terms of what you guys uh, have brought up over the past few minutes. And I think that one thing that it might be useful for us to contemplate and, and to think about is about how the war helps us to understand the changing status and position of Jews within Ukraine, which is to say that, you know, on the one hand, Jeff, as you kind of indicated before, there's a great potential danger, you know, to kind of seeing Jews at the center of the war, right, both because it could lead to Jews being targeted by one or, or both sides. 
And uh, also because on a very fundamental level, this is not a war about Jews, you know, however much that, that Putin might use this somewhat strange language of denazification. But I think that part of what is interesting when we think about you know, this issue that, that I mentioned earlier about why Ukraine is so important when we think about Jewish history as a whole, right, is that we can see some of the ways in which Ukraine has been the site of a, a great deal of tragedy, right? But also, as you mentioned, you know, many types of flourishings of Jewish cultures uh, as well. So I think that part of the fascination with Zelensky, you know, certainly, you know, in terms of how he's being described and talked about as a Jew, right, you know, perhaps it has to do with like a couple different things. Number one being as a refutation of Putin's language of denazification, because how can he talk about denazifying a country with a Jewish leader, right? It kind of shows how on its face it's such a ridiculous claim. You know, but also because, you know, and there's been some interesting writing about this recently about the way in which having a Jewish president seems to indicate a kind of shift in the position of Jews in Ukraine, where at least in terms of popular historical memory, Ukraine is so often seen as the site of massacres, you know, pogroms, you know, and, and so on and so forth from the 17th century, you know, to the 20th century. How is it that the war, you know, and, and Zelensky perhaps particularly, but beyond that, how does it help us to understand the broader history of Jews in Ukraine? And also the development of the 21st century contemporary Jewish population and Jewish communities in Ukraine as well. For one, I think when we hear Putin talk about denazification, we think of Jews. And that's why the argument that Zelensky is Jewish seems to counter that narrative. But to many Russians, they don't think of Nazis as being particularly anti-Jewish. They don't make that association because for many years in the Soviet Union, uh, it was denied that the Nazis specifically targeted Jews. And the Soviet narrative of what they called the Great Patriotic War was a war of fascism against communism that didn't really account for differences of ethnic groups or religious groups um, or nations for that matter. So they downplayed the specificity of Jewish suffering during the war. And many Russians still continue to think that way or still have that mindset. The classic example is the memorial at Babi Yar, which the memorial that was established in the, that was put there in the 1970s simply said that peaceful Soviet citizens or the like were killed there rather than specifically Jews. And this is how Russians thought of it for a long time. So when they hear Nazi, they think of the opposition to Russia. They think of the people that Russia fought rather than people who were against Jews. So that's why Zelensky's Jewishness isn't all that salient in aspects of the Russian mindset in regard to Nazism. So that's one point. Another that I'll say is just on the current Jewish community, around the turn of the 19th, 20th century, there were about three and a half million Jews living on the territory that is today Ukraine. And right now, there are probably about 40,000 people who identify as Jews, and maybe another 150,000, so 200,000 or so total people who would be considered Jewish according to halachic law or according to Israel's law of return. So it's a very small marginal number. Nevertheless, they are a significant minority because of their history in that region and because people are very aware that Jews did have a long history in the region and continue to play significant roles. There are also people who tend to have relatives abroad, that many Jews who remained after the fall of the Soviet Union have relatives who went to Israel or went to America or went to Germany. And many younger Jews also go back and forth between Ukraine and Germany, Israel and the United States. 
So I think that's a significant aspect of the Jewish community too. It tends to be a very connected community and a very global community as it always has been. It's interesting. I mean, I know in theory, what you're saying makes sense. I'm trying to think about my friends there who are Jewish and Many of them have never been to the U.S. or not, or Israel or not, actually. They just happen to be, Ukraine, you know, Jewish in Ukraine. Although, absolutely, I mean, historically and now, Jews often do have a connection to other countries, a connection to people who may have left, who may have gone to other countries. I wanted to add to what you were saying about, first of all, about the rhetoric of Nazism. I think Jeff is spot on that the association of Nazism with Jews is immediate in the United States. It's not immediate in Russia in the same way. The association of Nazism with anti-Russian sentiment is stronger. I also think that Zelensky's Jewish identity has been highlighted both by him and by others because of those preposterous claims that, you know, that the the Ukrainians are somehow Nazis. And then, of course, also because some really significant sites of Jewish heritage have already been hurt in this war. There was a missile that landed on Babuñar outside of Kiev, and Zelensky gave a very poignant speech about that, saying, we were all there in Freedom Square in Kharkiv when a bomb landed in Kharkiv. We were all killed by the bomb that hit the house in the suburbs of Kiev. We all died in the Holocaust again when the missile hit Babuñar. And that was a speech to Ukrainians. But it was a speech about how Ukrainians and Jews are all identifying with the place, with this place of Ukraine. He posted it to his Facebook page and had it translated into Hebrew because it was important to him to reach out to the Israelis who might be following this war. As to your question about the changes in relations, in in Ukrainian-Jewish relations, since the breakup of the Soviet Union, there have been a lot of efforts to have to have. Jewish organizations serve Ukrainian Jews. There have been very formalized efforts by organizations like Joint, by Chabad, and by more liberal, less orthodox denominations as well. And then you also have things like the Ukrainian Jewish Encounters Initiative out of Canada. You have these initiatives to kind of think about the Ukrainian Jewish rapprochement that has happened and the one that should continue to happen. But you've also seen an interest in Jewish history just among non-Jewish Ukrainians. And that's something that I've found to be really striking over the last eight years. You have Mariana Kianowska, who is one of the best-known poets in Ukraine. She identifies as Christian. She does not have Jewish ancestry. She wrote a very long cycle titled The Voices of Babunyar. It's now been translated into English that is taking on these voices of the dead and integrating those voices into a history of Ukrainian tragedy. At certain moments in the poems, she even compares Babunyar to, to the Holodomor or the Great Famine, which is really a sacred tragedy in Ukrainian history. This famine was horrific. Millions of people died in the famine, which very strong arguments have been made that this was largely engineered, if not entirely. And so by bringing Babunyar and other Jewish tragedies into that collective memory, Ukrainians have made an effort to have a conversation, to begin to have a conversation about Ukrainian-Jewish relations as well. So this competitive history that might have been present after the immediate breakup of the Soviet Union has been massaged a little bit. And I think that there are various reasons for that. I, I honestly think probably one of them is Putin's pressure 
during 2014, after the Maidan, Putin's constant claims that there were neo-Nazis on the Maidan encouraged Ukrainians to say, let's make sure that's not true. I really think that has what he's done is to actually help create a sort of civic solidarity in the country that he would like nothing better than to prove is nationalist and, and a Nazi state. So I think that there are a couple of key issues that you guys have touched on in, in just the past few moments. You know, Amelia, your comments here, you mentioned this earlier in our conversation as well, about the emergence of a civic identity as opposed to an ethno-nationalist identity. I think that in terms of the way in which people in the U.S. Uh, have been talking about the conflict, about the war, there is this understanding that over the past eight years or so, there's been this crystallization of a specific Ukrainian identity, you know, which is one of the reasons why this war is so despicable. You know, Ukraine has been developing in, in such a, a positive way, of course, with some negative aspects as well. It's not, you know, always perfect. But in terms of a sense of Ukrainianness, where you have Ukrainian nationalism going back, you know, much further, but being very successful at the development of the Ukrainian state, I'm not really quite seeing in terms of the writing on Ukraine at the moment, this kind of distinction between nationalism and civic identity, right? And I think that part of what you're getting at here, which is really important, is the way in which having a civic identity, which is not tied to the specific ethno-nationalist group of, say, Ukrainians, is actually very open to the various minority groups within present-day Ukraine, right? So this, of course, as you mentioned, includes Jews, but also Russians and other groups as well. And so why is this so important for us as we are understanding contemporary Ukrainian history, uh, the war itself, but also the wider arc here of the development of different kinds of identity and political organizations and cultural frameworks in Ukraine. Sometimes it can be confusing to an English-speaking audience when Slavicists or East Europeanists refer to the term national identity. In the Soviet Union, there was this concept of nationalness, right? Nationality, nationhood, that was really ethno-nationalism. Really, ethnicity is a better term for it than nationality. But the idea is that there, Ukraine was a place that was largely under the control of people of Ukrainian ethnicity. The Ukrainian Soviet Republic was a place that was mostly for people of Ukrainian ethnicity, but then there were other people living within it who had little islands of self-determination within Ukraine. And so when the breakup of the Soviet Union happened, you often had this concern on a global scale that there would be a balkanization based on ethnicity because of the way that the Soviet republics had been broken down. Even during the Soviet period, U Ukraine was relatively multi-ethnic. And obviously, there's also within that a lot of mixing. The Soviet Union was a place where you had a lot of mixing, and it's a place where Ukrainians, Jews, Tatars marry each other. And so you also have people of mixed parentage there. So when we talk about an ethno-national identity, when I say that, that word, I'm talking about people who might identify in a kind of ethnic way, right, with the bloodline of Ukraine, and maybe also with Ukrainian religion and Ukrainian language. And this was something that was still emphasized after the fall of the Soviet Union and even into the Yushchenko regime, even Poroshenko, when he ran for re-election, ran on a platform of language, war, and faith, which is somewhat ethno-national. Whereas I've seen Ukraine shifting to this point where having a Ukrainian identity, a statehood identity, what we might in the United States call a national identity, 
isn't about ethnicity at all. It's more about this civic identification, this holding of a Ukrainian passport. So there have been really interesting articles that have come out of Ukraine since the Maidan in 2013-2014, showing that more people in Ukraine are identifying as Ukrainian. There was always a choice as to which ethnicity, right, or which, which group identity to choose. And many of those people who were calling themselves Russians living in Ukraine before started to shift and call themselves Ukrainians, regardless of what language they spoke. You also saw a shift in the number of people that said that they speak Ukrainian most of the time. And so this movement towards a Ukrainian identity clearly had nothing to do with the language of um, their upbringing, and it didn't have anything to do with their ethnic heritage, with their race or bloodline, if you'll call it that. This is what I mean by a civic identity, that there's this move to identify as Ukrainian, regardless of what your parents identified as or what your grandparents identified as. And this is in stark contrast to Putin, who in his speeches and articles has talked about the shared bloodline of Russians and Ukrainians. And that almost looks like a kind of, I don't know, pan-Slavic ethnic identity that he's trying to reunite. You know, a generation ago, you'd be hard-pressed to find a Jew in Ukraine who would call themselves Ukrainian. And when we conducted our interviews, no Jews that we interviewed called themselves Ukrainian. And even in 1918, 1921, during the time of the first modern Ukrainian state, there were many Jews who supported the Ukrainian state, who were very proud to be a part of that Ukrainian state. That Ukrainian state supported national minorities and even had a Ministry of Jewish Affairs. So even those Jews who were part of the Ukrainian state and serving in the cabinet of that Ukrainian state would not call themselves Ukrainian. They would still say that they're Jewish, whereas a Ukrainian is Ukrainian. They're a Jew who is functioning in this Ukrainian state. But now you are seeing that change where people who are Jewish or who are Russian could call themselves Ukrainian, and it makes sense. And to me, that's the difference between an ethno-national state and a civic state, is if you can say if you're Jewish, and you can say that you are also Ukrainian. This was a big deal in the United States. When Jews started to come to the United States, they were very proud that you could be American and Jewish. And that was only possible in the United States. It wasn't possible elsewhere. And that's because the United States was a nation based on a civic identity rather than ethnic identity. I think another set of issues here, you know, which is really important for us to grapple with, is the way in which our understanding of the conflict that is taking place, you know, of this war is being filtered through kind of an American perspective in terms of like how it's being discussed in the media. And part of what we've been getting at here a little bit is the way in which American understandings of 20th century history actually kind of obscure what is taking place. In as much as, for instance, the Soviet and you know the contemporary Russian understanding of World War II and of Nazism is a little bit different from the way in which Americans talk about the Second World War and Nazism, right? And I think that part of what is very interesting about what is taking place right now is that many people are trying to discuss the war, right? And they're trying to discuss specifically this kind of question of quote-unquote denazification, right? But using the terms in a different way than Russians are using them. What are some of the reasons why having a really broad historical and cultural understanding, you know, of Eastern Europe, what are some of the things that we take away from that as we look at the war, right? And then also, what is it that we lose, perhaps, when people look at these issues without that cultural context? Knowing your history is a double-edged sword. 
On one hand, there are those who know Jewish history in Ukraine, and I have certainly heard these voices, who will say this is a history of complete anti-Semitism, and the Jews have always been oppressed in Ukraine, and now the Ukrainians are getting their comeuppance. And I've heard this type of ultra-nationalist you know, talk. And it's disturbing because that's not what the history tells us. But I can understand how people read the history that way and see it as simply a history of oppression and see the Ukrainians and the Jews as natural enemies. And we certainly do hear that rhetoric. It's a very selective history and it's a wrong interpretation of that history. But I hear it. We also hear rhetoric on opposition to sanctions against Russia from those who fear that if this can happen to Russia, and if Russia can be canceled in this way, then the next thing is it will be used against Israel. And what we are seeing is really an unprecedented global movement against Russia that is literally destroying that economy as we speak. And people are very aware of how that can be used against other states in the future. So there you know, is a danger in selective understanding of the history. You need to really delve in deeper to apply it. Since I was a student in the 90s, I've seen Slavic departments and East European studies programs shrink. That's the end of the Cold War. So funding went elsewhere and it needed to go to those other places. But I think we're seeing now the need to have a balance of scholars and of funding poured into scholarship in languages of the world, in all languages of the world, in in histories and cultures of the world. And I am really pleased that my own scholarship in the area of Ukraine has been useful, but I also, I'm poignantly aware of the small size of scholarly community that's been tapped for whatever information we can share right now. And I don't know, Jeff, if you're feeling the same way, but I know a lot of us are feeling almost a little overwhelmed by the the need for, for more colleagues right now. I think this is what happens. Once education follows political trends, then suddenly when you need expertise in one region, it's not there. Yes, we could really use more expertise in this region right now. You know, I would argue that the rise of the study of Eastern Europe, you know, was in and of itself a product of the Cold War, that the federal government and, and universities poured resources into the study of the Soviet Union and of Eastern European history, you know, because the Soviet Union uh, was the antagonist, you know, of the U.S. in the context of the Cold War. We can talk about the impact of, you know, the funding on scholarship in terms of programs and, you know, numbers of faculty, you know, and how this translates into books and articles and scholarly production, right? But the other kind of aspect of this kind of issue is the way in which the kind of lack of attention, you know, which is perhaps given to the region of Eastern Europe since the Cold War has an impact in terms of popular understanding, or I might say the popular misunderstanding of this entire region. You know, the average American, there is a complete misunderstanding of the history of the Cold War and of the, you know, the break apart of the Soviet Union uh, and its aftermath. And so I think that part of what is going on here, at least in terms of the way in which the war in Ukraine is being understood in America, is a, is a lack of understanding of the broader historical background and context of just the past 30, 40 years. You know, and this is connected, I think, as you guys pointed out, to shifts in, you know, universities and, you know, government funding and so on and so forth. But like, you know, what is the impact here of people thinking about the Cold War and about the Soviet Union and about, you know, post-Soviet Russia and Eastern Europe from such a distinctly American perspective, 
right? As opposed to having the kind of global perspective, which is really necessary to fully understand the conflict. For one, in many ways, we are seeing a resurgence of Cold War era politics um, with a resurgent Russia that's acting in the way that it's acting, which reminds us of the Russia of the 20th century. I mean, we're really seeing a this is a 20th century war so far, not what we would expect in a 21st century war. So the other comment I have is just more generally related to the way funding in the United States is going towards, I think, particularly the sciences instead of the humanities. And we've seen that in a few recent events where the failure to understand the humanities, to know how to assess information and read information has really damaged us in ways that the science has been well ahead of the humanities. And I think we saw that in the American response to the COVID pandemic, for instance, and the continuing American response to the COVID pandemic, which is, it's absolutely miraculous how quickly they were able to develop a vaccine and how quickly they were able to develop treatments for COVID and to diagnose this and to recognize where it was coming and to predict where it was going to surge next. Absolutely almost miraculous. But the humanities part was the problem, that Americans weren't educated in how to assess information and read information. So the science was there, but people couldn't interpret it and couldn't understand it correctly. And that's what led to our failure to capitalize on the advances in science. And we saw the exact same thing happen in Afghanistan. All of the advances that we have in weaponry and the science of weaponry and the radar and the, I don't know, whatever else is needed to wage a modern war. We had the most advanced army in the world, but our failure to understand the conflict on the ground, our failure to understand the languages, to recognize what was actually happening is what led to our failure in Afghanistan. We needed more humanities there as well. It's a little bit early in this war to say how that's going to pan out, but it wouldn't surprise me if when all is said and done, we're going to come to the same assessments. I want to jump in here and kind of build off of that, you know, um, because I think this is a, a brilliant analysis, right, of thinking about how the kind of thing that we might talk about as professors at the university, it reflects itself in various parts of our society. It's not just about resources that go to the natural sciences versus to the humanities, but it's kind of the expectation that the sciences will save us from one issue or another. And I'm thinking here about like climate change, for instance, right? You know, where uh, I think that there is a great deal of hope, uh, at least in terms of, again, the way that climate change is often written about in the press and so on, that somehow you know, the scientists will come up with some way to reduce our climate footprint, right? You know, in a way that will avert the climate disaster, to invent our way out of the climate crisis, right? But there's a humanities side to understanding the climate as well, right? Understanding human behavior, understanding why people make the choices that they do. Part of what I'm getting at here, and I think this is kind of the heart of what this podcast as a whole is about, is about the ways in which history matters, right? The way in which cultural understandings matter, and I think that when we look at any number of important issues, there often is a lack of this historical understanding in terms of the way in which it's being approached in a political sense, you know, or in a broader public sense. And I think that what you are getting at here, Jeffrey, is the ways in which various recent issues, you know, have been looked at through the lens of science and not through the lens of the humanities. And this goes back, you know, Amelia, to something you said towards the very beginning of our conversation, which is that you know, when you heard some of the rhetoric coming out about Ukraine from the Russian side, how it's so completely divorced from the things that you've been seeing in your research, right? And in your study and your, your experiences in Ukraine uh, being there, you know, and also just more broadly, why is it that this humanities approach, right, is so important for us to understand conflict and so important for us to understand, 
you know, ongoing crises and current events, you know, that we can see that history matters when we're looking at this conflict. And I think one of the ways in which we can see that it matters is just the use of history, right? I would call it more the abuse of history by Putin, you know, to make his you know, rhetorical claims for why, you know, they should fight this war. You know, but there are all sorts of other ways in which, you know, the historical and cultural approaches are really just so critical in order for people to fully understand what's going on in the first place and then figure out what is the best way to respond to it. One can hope. Yeah. I mean, we, we need both, right? We need both. And I think one thing that we've seen, not only under Putin in Russia, but under Trump in the United States is the weaponization of people's laziness and ignorance. Uh, misinformation is so easy in a world where people are getting their news from Twitter and from these quick quotes. And uh, we're learning to read things without checking sources. We are learning to uh, sensationalize when we share information so that the, the strongest image is the one that gets paid attention to. When I teach my students, I think the most important thing that I can teach them is to learn to be responsible consumers of media, to recognize fake news when they see it, to understand how to check for sources, how to check for dates when they look at a piece of information that's coming across their desktops. And this is something that we need to, to train our students to do. It's certainly something that a degree in the humanities helps us to do and helps us to teach. So I agree that the humanities needs to be considered an important part of, of the human sciences, if you want to call them that right now. I wouldn't only say that it's Putin. I think that the current Kremlin has found ways of manipulating something that's already been happening in the, the world of consumer culture or in our consumption of media. And I think that the Trump administration also managed to do this in very crafty ways. And it's up to us as consumers to be very careful. If something comes across our desks just because we agree with it and because it validates our thoughts doesn't mean we should retweet it. Unless we can personally look at a, a validated news source, we need to be very careful about what we read, what we believe, what gets passed along. I'll also add on kind of on the level of history, Putin, a lot of his rhetoric has gone back to the Iraq war. So he's based his current invasion of Ukraine. He's justified it occasionally by citing uh, the second Bush's invasion of Iraq saying, well, it's just intervention in, uh, in another government. And he didn't necessarily have proof that there were weapons of mass destruction, but he still had to go in. Well, I went back the other day and I was rereading my notes from Putin's July 12th document that he published on the Kremlin website. And I hadn't remembered this, but he'd actually written that uh, anti-Russian sentiment in Ukraine should be compared to weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> so we can go back to some of these early documents as declarations of war that none of us were really paying attention to. We're so used to getting barraged by crazy that when something comes along that should probably raise all of our, our red flags, we're reading so much crazy stuff that we just pass right through it. All of my colleagues read that, right? It was like, you know, I read it multiple times. I was working it into my book, but I wasn't, I didn't read it as a declaration of war at the time. And I guess that just speaks to information, taking information seriously and recognizing where information is coming from. And yes, I read that too in July and didn't think it was going to come to this. What is interesting here, you know, in terms of these reflections, you know, is that it raises, I think, very significant questions about what kind of war this is. It was just to say that, of course, we don't quite know what kind of war this is until it's over. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I feel most comfortably speaking about the past because I'm a historian, right? But with that said, 
I think the way that you just framed the contemporary issues of information and misinformation, right, as, as being connected with this war brings us back to something that, Jeff, you mentioned earlier in our conversation, which is that in some ways, this is a war that shows us that the 20th century isn't over yet, that many of the issues of the 20th century are still present and with us, and that in many ways, this is a war that is reminiscent of the wars of the 20th century. It's a land war in Europe, right, where there hasn't been a land war in Europe, you know, in quite some time. So on the one hand, this is a war that is reflective of a certain kind of history of wars in Europe, right? Um, And at the same time, it's a very contemporary kind of war where the war is kind of being waged on the internet as well. As we look at this war in its historical and cultural context, do we see this as more of an extension of the 20th century wars in Europe in some fashion? And the end of the Soviet Union and its long-term ramifications? Or is this something new in terms of a kind of a 21st century kind of war in this way that we're talking about information and misinformation? And even, you know, as Emilio just mentioned before, the way in which Putin like has tried to use the U.S. invasion of Iraq as a justification, quote unquote, for what he has tried to do here. I mean, wars are always about information as well as about militaries. And we're seeing that very much in this case as well. I think that the way that people are utilizing information and the way the combatants and victims are utilizing information in this war is a little bit different. And we'll see what the end results are. It's a little too early to tell, but war is very unpredictable and never goes the way we think it's going to go. And there are always things that come out of it that are unexpected. One of this could be a new way of disseminating information. We're seeing it in a wide variety of different ways. We're seeing it from the Instagram posts that Ukrainians are posting showing Russian tanks being defeated or running out of gas. And if those get back to Russia, that has an effect on the morale back in Russia. We see it on these information lines that Ukrainians are hosting where Russians can call up to find out the fate of their family members who are soldiers fighting in the Russian army. And Ukraine is keeping track of who they're capturing and who they're killing and reporting it back on these information lines. There's a wide variety of ways in which this information is being manipulated, and it can work to our advantage as well as our disadvantage. We don't know exactly which will come of it. And then the other is just to get back to the climate change, which is somewhat unrelated, but in some ways is related, that another impact of this could be is we are now moving our reliance away from Russian oil and natural gas. Suddenly, within a day, the United States is cutting off 10% of its, uh, whatever it is, of its oil, natural gas purchasing from Russia. And we're going to have to make up for that in some way. So making up for all of this Russian oil could help lead to new ways of getting energy from renewable sources. So you just don't know. It's unpredictable. It could happen. But war is unpredictable. Do you have any kind of final words or final thoughts here about what's going on and the historical and cultural context, why it's so important as we try to to make sense of what is taking place and understand what might happen as it develops? You know, just hope for the best for our friends and colleagues in Ukraine and our friends and colleagues affected in other countries by this absolutely terrible war and hope that it can come to an end soon in a positive way. Yeah, I I appreciate that, that positive note. I also, it's way too early to tell, but I will say that I am watching friends and colleagues in Ukraine 
fight for something that is very deep for them. It's This is not about money. This is not about some kind of material gain or territorial control for them. Obviously, it's about maintaining their own country, their own borders. But it's about this ideology of being able to have a say in their future and I have a friend who's a professor of Jewish history. He's, a, he's in the volunteer army. He's out there defending Kiev. I have other friends who are driving between cities at great risks to themselves. Uh, there are a number of scholar at risk programs that have been set up at universities to try to create safety nets for academics so that they can leave Ukraine. And whenever I've broached the subject with these friends, I've been told, don't even ask me that right now. I, here I am. We're sheltering in place with our family. We're staying in Ukraine. I'm in the middle of fighting. Russians have been leaving Russia for very understandable reasons. But I'm absolutely humbled by what I see happening in Ukraine. And I, my entire life, I've considered myself the ultimate pacifist, and none of these people ever wanted to go to war. Um, but here they are when faced with a, um, a horrific attack, resisting because of their very strong belief in being able to, to determine the ideology of the country they live in. I just want to thank you both again for on very short notice joining me on the podcast to talk about such an important issue um, and to share your expertise and, and your thinking on these issues you know, as you're so both so closely connected with the history and the culture and contemporary developments there as well. So thank you both. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. Thank you, Jason. And thanks to you for listening to this episode on the current events in Ukraine. Until next time, I'm Jason Lustig, and this is Jewish History Matters.